So we're going to read from Habakkuk, the first chapter, verses 2 through 4, and we're going to hear Habakkuk's questions. It's actually a complaint. Can you relate to complaining to God? Hear Habakkuk's complaint. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That's his complaint. And he complains for two chapters. Do you relate to that? Uh, he has questions for two chapters, but then in verses 16 through 19a in chapter 3, we find that his encounter with God is transforming. Because listen to him now. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is the word of God. And you say, you're getting it. <laughs> well, good morning. It's good to be with you. We're good. We're good. Um, put this right here. Good to be with you all this morning. I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the, as Chris said, the RUF campus minister at Wake. Um, and it is uh, a joy to be with you all this morning and to bring the word to you. Um, Perhaps one of the oldest questions that humans have been asking is, how can I be happy? How can I be happy? In 2006, Will Smith starred in a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness, and this movie's answer to the question, how can I be happy, is that if you live a successful life and make a lot of money, you'll be happy. Well, last summer, Arthur Brooks, who is a Harvard professor um, and is renowned as a happiness expert, uh, he wrote an article for The Atlantic called Why Success Won't Make You Happy. And in the article, he outlines how success operates like a drug, and the pursuit of it will actually make your life dull and lifeless, not, not leaving room for the things that actually make you happy. Now, it may be one of the oldest questions, but it's also one of the most relevant questions. How can I be happy? Right now, in the midst of all that's going on inside of us, around us, locally, globally, how can I be happy? 
Well, this question, this is the question that we're taking up together as we study the book of Habakkuk together. Um, so Habakkuk, if you're unfamiliar with Habakkuk, Habakkuk was a, uh, a prophet. He's one of the minor prophets. And minor just means that his book is shorter. He wasn't less important. But the minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And they're called minor because they're shorter. And Habakkuk wrote and lived in the late 600s B.C., so probably as late as 605, the end of that century. And to give us some historical context, King David united the 12 tribes of Israel into one kingdom around 1000 BC. And then ancient Israel split into two kingdoms, the north called Israel and the south called Judah, around 930 BC. And then Assyria, which was headquartered in Nineveh, conquered the northern kingdom in 722, and then King Josiah, who was the last good king of the southern kingdom, he died in 609. And then we, we find out that Babylon was conquered, or Babylon conquered Jerusalem and the southern kingdom in 586 BC. So Habakkuk is, is writing his book right after Josiah dies. Josiah, the last good king, right after he dies, and 20 years before Jerusalem falls. So this is a time of deep instability in Israel. We're told that it's a time when people had given up on God that they were doing whatever they wanted, and the result was that um, it was full of evil and was on the edge of destruction. And the question that Habakkuk takes up is that in the midst of international war, in the midst of, of religious hypocrisy, of political scandal, of turmoil inside and outside, in the midst of all of this, how can I be happy? In the face of all of the chaos and the uncertainty, and evil in the world, how can I actually be happy? How can I have and sustain real happiness regardless of my circumstances, despite my circumstances? And this is the question that Habakkuk asks. And in the book, we're given God's answer. Habakkuk's short, it's three chapters, and records, like Susan said, this back and forth between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk complains, and God responds. And what I want us to see this morning is that whatever your circumstances, Whatever life throws your way, true happiness can be yours. And Habakkuk shows us that true happiness comes through being in direct contact with God. And this happens by remembering God's goodness, by rejoicing in God's goodness, and by resting in God's goodness. So Habakkuk begins with this line. He cries out, he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? And this cry, how long, is really honest, isn't it? He is just tired of waiting. And this cry, how long, is on the lips of God's people 59 times in the Bible, and it's on Jesus' lips five times. This is a common longing, and you get this. How long? How, when is it going to get better? When are things going to go back to normal? When will my anxiety stop? When will my marriage improve? When will injustice end? When will this suffering be over? When will my family stop fighting? How long? And at the end of the book, we see this curious turn. In chapter 3, verse 17, Habakkuk lays out the absolute worst-case scenario. He says, There are no figs. Let there be no figs on the fig tree, no grapes on the grapevine, no olives on the olive trees, no animals in the fields or stalls. He's saying, No food. He'd be saying, He's saying complete and utter famine. For us, the equivalent would be no power, 
cell phone towers are down, and the grocery stores are out of food for the whole summer. And then in, we'd all be dead. That's a, let's be honest, unless some of you are actually farmers. Um, but in verse 18, he says, in the midst of that, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So how does he get there? How does Habakkuk get from the angry, confused, frustrated longing of how long to laying out this litany of the worst case scenario and saying, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And the answer is that he remembers God's goodness. He remembers God's goodness. Chapter three, up until what we read, is a rehearsal of God's goodness. It's this poetic retelling of all that God has done to save his people. Habakkuk remembers the story of Moses delivering Israel out of Egyptian slavery, and then he remembers the story of Joshua leading Israel into the promised land. But in his poetry, Moses and Joshua's names are conspicuously absent. In fact, Habakkuk doesn't give credit to them at all. Instead, he gives credit to God that it was the Lord who saved Israel from their slavery and brought them into the promised land. It was the Lord who fought their battles and conquered their enemies. And Habakkuk is showing us something. He's showing us that the way for us to be happy is to remember God's goodness. And we remember things by repetition. You know this. I mean, this is how we learn anything, how we remember anything. Um, your time spent shooting free throws in the driveway or, or practicing scales or time in the batting cage or the driving range. This is how we remember things, through repetition. And just like that, the way that you will remember God's goodness to you is through repetition. Reading God's promises, remembering his promises, studying the Bible, listening to good sermons, praying the Lord's Prayer, reading the Psalms, doing this alone, doing it together, getting yourself in front of God's goodness and pressing repeat. Repetition. Find preachers who are committed to helping you remember God's goodness and listen to them. For me and for us, it's our preachers here at Redeemer. And on podcasts, it's for me, it's Tim Keller and Brian Habig. And these, I share that with you because this is so important for us to get us ourselves in front of these reminders of his goodness. I gave you a lot of things. Don't do these all right away. Do a few things and repeat. Like if you currently don't read the Bible and pray, start by reading and praying once a day. And if you do it once a day, try it twice a day. And before you dismiss me for being legalistic and telling you what to do, repetition is the only way that you remember anything. The only way that you're going to remember God's goodness is by getting yourself in front of his goodness over and over again. This is how you build any habit. I mean, this is what you do with your phones. How many times did you check your phone last week? Now our phones tell us, right, how much we check. Embarrassingly, my average uh, is 85 times a day. That's insane. It's not okay. Um, I don't do anything 85 times a day. I guess I do. I check my phone 85 times a day. Y'all, we can read our Bible a few times a day. Um, Tim Keller says this. He says, if we want to get in contact with God directly, we must do repetition. We must repeat. We must practice, pray daily, once a day, twice a day, three times a day. And he asks, why do we have four Gospels? It's because um, the repetition shows us Jesus over and over again from different angles, different perspectives. We have a deep need for repetition, a need to memorize the Bible, a need to pray regularly, because we're creatures who work through habit. You need to do this alone, but you also need to do it together. Um, 
We need one another to remember God's goodness. A few years ago, I was, um, I was in the midst of a, a mild depression, and I told Mary Clark, I said, I'm afraid that I'm going to go to a dark place, and I'm going to forget God's goodness to me. And if I get there, I need you to tell me, to remind me, to tell me true things about who God is. And I got there and, and told her one night, tell me who God is. Remind me of the true things about Jesus and his grace. And she did. And she got me through that dark night. So a question for you. Do you have friends who remind you of the goodness of God? And do you do this for others? Do others come to you because you are full of reminders of God's goodness? Friends, brothers and sisters, we need this desperately. And if you don't have someone who does this for you, ask someone. So by remembering God's goodness, and second, by rejoicing in God's goodness. The secret to true happiness is found in rejoicing. Not, not in our circumstances, but in God's goodness. In the 16th century, um, John Calvin wrote this big book to teach Christians. It's called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And I don't know what, you, what you've heard or you think about Calvin. When I was in college, I had been taught that he was a killjoy, that he wasn't worth my time. But when I began to read him for myself, I discovered, well, this is what I discovered. I want you to listen to this. This is from a section entitled, Certainty About God's Providence Puts Joyous Trust Towards God in Our Hearts. How do you know something was written during the 16th century? It has a title like that. Certainty About God's Providence Puts Joyous Trust Towards God in Our Hearts. This is what he writes. He says, a Christian's comfort is to know that their heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing can happen except what he determines. Moreover, it comforts them to know that they have been received into God's safekeeping and entrusted to the care of his angels, that neither water nor fire nor iron can harm them except in so far as it pleases God as governor to give them occasion. For thus indeed the psalm sings, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. How can you have this never-failing assurance? Only from knowing that when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is everywhere at work, and from trusting that his work will be for your good. Here's what he's saying about, about happiness. Calvin is saying that it is through direct experience of God that we have happiness, getting direct contact with God rejoicing in his goodness is where true happiness is. But we have a problem. And our problem is that we often have an inferred enjoyment of God. As one pastor puts it, an inferred enjoyment of God means that we enjoy God through the good gifts that he gives us. Good gifts like family and friends, warm clothes, a roof over our heads, food, material possessions, the strength in our bodies, our physical health. We receive these as gifts from God, which they are, and we enjoy God through them. But this is inferred enjoyment. It's not direct. And so our happiness is connected to our circumstances. 
We enjoy God because of the good things he gives us. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But what will happen when your circumstances change? So how do you have a happiness that is independent of your circumstances? A happiness that is safeguarded from the good things in your life. Friends, you need a direct enjoyment of God. Enjoying God for who he is and not what he gives you. I think often when we think of God, we see him as like a distant uncle who gives you money at Christmas, but you really don't have a relationship with him beyond that. And you're thinking like, hey, this is, a, this is pretty good. I get money from this guy. I don't really know him. I don't know if I want to get to know him because maybe the checks will go away. And I think often that's how we, we feel about God. We think that he's like that. Um, Recently, I heard a story that was described to me as one of the most moving pieces of church history. It's a story of a man named Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner was a British missionary, and he died in 1851 on an uninhabited island off the tip of South America. He and his crew all died one at a time of starvation, and his journals were recovered, and as he was dying with no one around him, everyone else having died before him, this is what he wrote. Psalm 3410. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but they that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And beneath it, he wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. We have a man who is dying of starvation. His body is broken. He's dying. He wanted to be a missionary, but he never got to. He ended up on an uninhabited island. From a modern standpoint, his life was a total failure, a total waste, unsuccessful, didn't achieve what he hoped for, but he was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. You and I, I think we infer the goodness of God from the good things he gives us. We say God's been good to me, and we mean good things are happening, and I can infer God is good to me. Alan Gardner must have gotten into contact with God. Not inferred contact, but direct contact. He was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. He rejoiced in God's goodness to him. In chapter 2, Habakkuk recounts his circumstances. He is surrounded by people who are full of wickedness and injustice. And at the end of chapter 3, he says things can get even worse. He's welcoming them to get worse. They can get so bad, he said, a summer without food, inevitable starvation. He says, bring on disaster because I know God's goodness. Not just in my mind, not just intellectual understanding of God's goodness, but experience. I've experienced his goodness, not inferred from the good thing he's given me, but tasted him and his goodness directly, enjoyed God directly, not because of my circumstances, not inferred enjoyment, direct enjoyment. Habakkuk is showing us that true happiness is found in rejoicing in God's goodness. Um, I have this every other week FaceTime call with a Christian counselor. Um, He's in Dallas, so we chat on the phone. And uh, this was back in February. We were having our call, and when I got on the call, I wasn't happy. Uh, I couldn't see beyond my own circumstances. This was the height of the lockdown at Wake Forest. So all of the COVID regulations, a lot of fear around the university and the university's restrictions. I was weighed down by my own sin and I was tired, and I was doing what I often do when things aren't going my way. I was asking, what can I do to make things better? 
what am I supposed to do to fix it? What do I need to do? Do you ever do this? Of course you do this. When things aren't going the way that you want them, you ask, we all ask, what do I need to do to fix it? And here's what my counselor said to me. He said, John, the question, what am I supposed to be doing right now, is the wrong question. The question, who am I supposed to be right now? That's a better question, but it's still the wrong question. The right question is, who is God? That is the only question you need to answer. He said, too many Christians waste too much time worrying about whether or not they're doing God's will. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you give your attention to God and your energy and effort towards delighting in Him, then you get to do whatever you want. Know God, be one who delights in Him, and then go do what you want. And stop worrying about whether or not it's the right thing because that's the wrong question. But how? You might be asking, how? How do I delight in God? How do I rejoice in God? This brings us to our third point, by resting in Him, by resting in God's goodness. Remember God's goodness, rejoice in God's goodness, and rest in God's goodness. Um, The very end of Habakkuk, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, he says this. He says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk is describing what what it is like to rest in God's goodness. And in searching for a metaphor, he gives us this picture of a deer climbing a mountain. Um, There's this great BBC Nature video on YouTube of an ibex, which is a wild Eurasian mountain goat, in case you're wondering. An ibex who is climbing this near-vertical stone dam, this this near-vertical wall, in order to lick the salt and the minerals that come through this leak in the side of the dam. And these these ibex, ibexes, ibex, they require this... These, these minerals to live, and so constantly they're walking up the sheer stone wall with their itty-bitty little ibex feet up there just to get a lick of the, the, um, the minerals, the water. And um, 136 million views, great video, go watch it. It's insane. I mean, the wall is near vertical, and the ibex is sure-footed, able to traverse this terrifying climb without fear. And the reason that he can climb hundreds of feet up the face of the stone wall to get a a lick of salt is because his feet are steady. He has unwavering faith that they can support his weight in the razor's edge of his footholds. So why is this the metaphor that Habakkuk gives us? Here's what I think is going on. The most famous verse in Habakkuk comes from the second chapter. If you remember, Habakkuk is crying out, How long, O Lord? And God responds in chapter 2, verse 3, and he says, if it, seems like, if it seems like I'm moving slow, keep waiting. I do not lie. And then verse, th- verse 4, the Lord says, the righteous shall live by faith. And this statement is the secret. It's the linchpin of the book. It's the linchpin of the entire Bible. This is the secret of happiness. The righteous shall live by faith. What does this mean? Well, righteous and righteousness, these aren't words that are common to us. They're not familiar to us. And it's an old word that means something similar to our word wholeness or enoughness. And this quest, this quest for enoughness is something that's universal. The longing to feel like you're enough, that you've got what it takes. And this is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about being righteous. A friend of mine, Dave Zoll, wrote a book called Seculosity. And in this book, he probes this question, 
claiming that this is the fundamental question to human existence that all of us are trying to answer all day long. How do I know that I'm enough? All of us, we're scrambling to answer this question to be successful enough or happy enough or thin enough or put together enough, strong enough, funny enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, woke enough, good enough, smart enough, the list goes on and on. And we believe intuitively that if we reach some benchmark in our minds, if we arrive, if we got enough, then we would be enough. But the problem with this is that we never quite arrive at enough. And people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self that they're trying to become. And I've heard a religious version of this that says, I used to feel like I wasn't enough, but God tells me I'm enough. And I'm sorry, but this just doesn't ring true for me because in my experience, I'm pretty confident that I'm not enough and every honest human I've ever met knows they're not enough either. Because the enoughness that you long for, that we all long for, the Bible calls this righteousness. And God tells Habakkuk, tells us through Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what this means. This means that the enoughness that you long for is not something that you will ever be able to achieve, either through what you do, or some feeling you muster up inside, or some identity that you express or put on, but that it's a gift. It's a gift that you receive, a gift that you receive by faith, a gift to rest in, because the enoughness that you long for is Jesus himself. Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you deserve. He took your not-enoughness on the cross in order to exchange it for his enoughness. He took your unrighteousness, and he gave you his righteousness. This is the goodness of God that he calls you to rest in. See, the Christian faith claims that God's goodness is revealed, God's goodness is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who was born into this world to be God's goodness with you who suffered and died on, in your place on the cross to be God's goodness to you, who was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures to be God's goodness for you, who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in you because he refuses to be God's goodness without you, who empowers the church by that same spirit because he longs to be God's goodness through you, and who will one day return to make all things new because his goodness is for you forever. True happiness comes by resting in God's goodness because true righteousness is not something you achieve. You can only receive it. How? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus Christ was enough. He is enough. Perfectly righteous. And on the cross, he took your sin and he gives you his righteousness received by faith. And living by faith means what Giorgio says to us all the time, trust falling into him. Trusting those little deer feet to carry you up the sheer wall of the dam. Letting yourself collapse in the arms of Jesus. Who will catch you? True happiness comes through resting in God's goodness. I'm wrapping up here. Um, those of you who know me know I'm a bit of an optimist. And I wish, I wish that I could stand up here and say to you and tell you that your life is going to be okay. That your life is going to work out just the way you want it to, that you'll do well in school, um, that you'll get a great job, that you'll marry the perfect person, that you'll have beautiful babies and they'll all grow up to be healthy and wise, 
that you'll never be lonely and nothing bad will ever happen to you. But I can't do that because that would be a lie. Those of you who are single may never be married. You may end up in a job that you hate. You may not be able to have children of your own. You may never have the body that you think will make you happy. Your family may fall apart. Your life will not turn out the way that you expect it to. But if your happiness is bound up in the goodness of God, if your one occupation is knowing and being known by the one who loves you and gave himself for you, then you can pray like Habakkuk, bring on the famine, I will rejoice in the Lord. I want to end this morning by reading to you the last thing recorded in Alan Gardner's journal before he starved off the coast of South America. This is what he wrote. He said, I am happy day and night, hour by hour. Asleep or awake, I am happy beyond words. My joys are with him whose delights have always been with the sons of men. And my heart and spirit are in heaven with the blessed. I have felt how holy is that company. I have felt how pure are their affections. And I have washed me in the blood of the lamb and asked my Lord for the white garment. That I too may mingle with the blaze of day and be amongst them one of the sons of light. I wish I could write more, but my fingers are aching with cold. And I must wrap them up in my clothes. But my heart, my heart is warm. Warm with praise, thanksgiving, and love to God my Father, and love to God my Redeemer. Friends, do you want a happiness that isn't contingent on your mood? A happiness that is invulnerable to the circumstances of your life? A happiness that will last beyond all of your successes and failures? Brothers and sisters, it is yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us that we... Um, so minimize who you are that we don't see the goodness and glory of your son Jesus and the life that you have for us in him. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you. Lord, that the happiness you designed us for is found in you alone. Thank you that you are so gracious to give us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.